0: Show you a better way.
1: You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 541 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday. That means it's call-in Friday. That means if you called 866-65-THINK and left me a question or a comment, you might hear it on the air today. Um, Right now, I'm up to calls from about two weeks ago. Uh, So if you called this week or even last week, you're probably not on the air today. But that means you're coming up soon. Uh, some of you guys leave two, three different questions, and I try to pull one out of of those, and eventually I'll go back and backfill is sometime uh, when I get kind of thin on calls. Um, but that's how you get on a show like this. And the reason I do these shows on Fridays is, you know, I set a topic mo- uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and I do a single topic, and I go deep into it. But you're the audience, right? And I want to talk about the things that you want to talk about. Well, the people that vote by picking up the phone, mashing some numbers and saying, tell me about this, well, that vote counts, and uh, unlike maybe some of our votes might not really count that much uh, in the coming election cycle, your votes here count. Uh, so that's why we do these. So if you listen to a show like this you think, man, I'd like to hear about this and that and this, not the, the ones that they're talking about, pick the phone up, call us toll-free, 866-65-THINK, because we encourage you not to think what I tell you to, but to think for yourself and know why you believe what you believe. Before we get into your calls and questions, let's knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a hell of a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Common Sense Prep, the place to find all the things that you need to prepare in a common sense fashion for whatever you may be getting ready to prepare for, whether it's the mundane or the insane, check out Common Sense Prep. And Remember, if you're part of the Member Support Brigade, uh, you get 15% off of all of their Paladin Press books, and the Paladin Press books for preppers, for homesteaders, uh, and for anybody kind of living this uh, independent lifestyle are some of the best I've ever seen. you got to get a few of those titles onto your bookshelf, so check those out. Sponsor of the day number 2 today, knifekits.com. Knifekits is an awesome site because if you're a professional bladesmith that just needs raw materials like exotic woods and things like that for fabricating your handles, they have everything you need. Do you know they actually have mammoth tusk stock at knifekits.com? Mammoth tusk. I, I I looked at it and I'm like that's actually tusk fossilized mammoth tusk that you can build a knife with. But if you're like me and you're not really a bladesmith and you're just kind of learning and you want kind of a kit that will just help you learn the process, kind of like one of those snap together kits you did when you were a kid. You know, you bought the card, you snapped it together, you put some stickers on it, that was your first model. And then if you did a model later, maybe you did it was glued together and you had to paint everything and you kind of stepped up in a hobby. That's what knife kits lets you do is step through that that learning curve, that learning process. And remember, MSB members, ten percent off everything knifekits.com sells. Check your back office, there's a discount code there waiting for you. Next up, check out the gear shop. I've been saying this, but we got some new stuff in. I think there's a few of the M3 medical bags left. I'm not even sure about that. I know they were selling like crazy. They're almost gone, if not gone. Um, red with a custom TSP logo. So if you're looking to put together a really good large-scale first aid or first responder kit, this is the bag to do it with. The M3 is the first responder bag of the military forces. This is a civilian model in red with our custom logo. Great stainless steel water bottles. They're only ten bucks a piece. And these aren't those little, you know, sixteen ounces. These are like twenty-five ounce big stainless steel water bottles uh, to keep in your refrigerator with cold water or take with you wherever you go. Uh, custom engraved with uh the survival podcast logo. So absolutely check out the gear shop. Also remember, I'm running a sale to help fund our AOC's Copper Coins. I'll be putting out the proofs of what they're going to look like today. They are going to be awesome. And to help fund the uh, the setup fees and all, running a sale until Halloween, which is Sunday. Use code word COPPER. Get your first year of the MSB for 30 bucks. Not going to say any more about that today. I do want to tell you that our sister site that I've helped put together with Nick Ledoux, SaveOurSkills.com, is running a huge contest with a great giveaway uh, that Kelly over at Survival Gear Bags put together all kinds of awesome stuff. Winner, I think it's a winner take all contest. So get over to Save Our Skills and uh, check out that contest and sign up for it. With that, let's go ahead and take uh, your calls and uh, and let's start running with this. So let's take call number one now.
2: Hi, Jack. Just listened to you briefly mention growing potatoes in straw in a box filled with straw and reference to the Weimar Republic and how that would have helped, but I'm like, huh, what, never heard about this, um, I don't recall you mentioning it on a show, perhaps it was on one I missed, so I haven't missed many, um, but if you could uh, kind of give a little bit more details on how this uh, growing potatoes in a thing of straw works, because that's something I really want to start growing, I like potatoes, my family likes potatoes, they're good carbs, and I'd like to start growing my own, and that might be easier than me trying to plow up a whole space of the field. Okay, okay. thanks much.
1: Okay, growing potatoes in straw. There's not a lot to it. Um, The particular way I was talking about doing it, though, because you can do this. You can literally go out and take your seed potatoes and lay them on the top of the ground and bury them in straw and and just create a a potato hill hill out of straw. And as your potato plants grow, if you want to keep hilling it, just keep adding straw and water them and that's it. Now, there's not a lot of nutrient there, right? Because the straw... Isn't broken down yet. It hasn't been composted yet. So they need to be fertilized. Now, the easy way to fertilize them, grow yourself a great big patch of comfrey, and every time you put a potato in there, a seed potato in there, take a, a big leaf of comfrey or two, wrap it around your seed potato, and put it right in there with it. The comfrey will break down uh, really quick. It'll release a tremendous amount of potash, uh, which is the main ingredient that you're going to need, the main nutrient that you're going to need. Um, to make your potatoes grow healthily, healthy. Um, you can use a little bit of additional organic fertilizer in a liquid form, maybe some compost tea with your watering to help it along, but that's probably not necessary. And uh, there you go, and that's it. It's just putting seed potatoes into a bale of wet straw, or a, a loose pile of wet straw is better than a bale, uh, instead of putting potatoes into the ground and digging up holes. Now, the potato box that Bill Mollison describes in one of his lectures that I listened to was a little bit simpler and a little bit more complex, depending on your view of it. Basically built a box out of scrap wood and lumped a bunch of uh, straw into it. And would plant potatoes going kind of from the solar exposure back forward, and that way you had potatoes in different stages at all times, and you could just, the ones that had, you know, the plants had died down, you could just reach in and pull the potatoes out, and, uh, of course, break off some of those for seed potatoes. And as you as your box empty toward the front and then you're staggering your harvest, you keep dropping them in the back. This could be done inside a greenhouse. So this could be done, you know, this could be done inside a greenhouse and be done later in the season than you could typically grow potatoes. If you are in a place where it's a little bit hot for growing potatoes, um, maybe it doesn't run, run year-round because potatoes don't do well if it gets too hot. But this is a very simple, very easy thing to do. The reason I didn't go deeply into it is because it is what it says. It's potatoes growing in straw. And again, I believe I mentioned comfrey at the time, but definitely if you wrap your potatoes, and this is even if you're planting them in the ground, wrap your seed potatoes in a comfrey leaf. And if any of you have ever grown comfrey and composted it by itself, it turns into a black, almost It's not the viscosity of oil, but it almost looks like used motor oil. It doesn't smell like used motor oil. It doesn't damage anything. But if I put it in a jar and put it on a table and I took a picture of it, and you could just look at the picture and you couldn't pick it up and turn it and see how it moved, you would think that's that's used motor oil. It is extremely rich in nutrient. Comfrey grows a huge taproot. It grows down a foot or more into the ground. And it's able to reach down and pull nutrients and minerals up out of the ground that aren't available to other plants. And then when it, you know, when it breaks down, it makes those nutrients available to other plants. That's its purpose. That's what it does. That's its function. So there you go. Potatoes in a straw bale box, easy to do. And like I said, when I, when the people that didn't hear the show, um, everybody talks about having to buy an entire, to buy a sack of potatoes, you needed a wheelbarrow full of money in the Weimar Republic. But even with hyperinflation, if everybody was growing a simple little potato box, everybody would have eaten, and that would have been one thing you didn't have to spend your wheelbarrow of money on. Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions.
0: Hey, Jack. I just wanted to touch on the uh, subject of tobacco. Um, I tried to uh, start a couple of tobacco plants this summertime, which I'm pretty sure isn't the right time to do it. Uh, all my little seedlings pretty much got fried in the sun except for one, so... I've got one going right now. Um, it's pretty big, and I was just wondering how long it takes before they actually seed. Um, hopefully that I'll be able to uh, collect some seeds from it before the winter comes. I'm here in Georgia, uh, right outside Atlanta, and uh, it's been in the ground for about a month and a half now, so I guess I have about another month to go. Will that be enough time? Um, also touch on the subject on what kind of uh, commodity a uh, tobacco plant would be, you know, in your backyard when a shit hits the fan scenario. Um, just think about how many gold pieces, you know, a guy down the road nicotine or uh, having a nick fit will give you, you know? How many barrels of Y-marks will a tobacco plant get you? Uh, just touch on that subject. Thanks a lot, Jack.
1: Well, I'll do what I can on this one with tobacco. Um, as far as going to seed, I don't know if you'll, if you'll pull that off this year. I know this question is from about two weeks ago. Um, we haven't had any frost here yet. I don't think you've had any frost in most of Georgia yet. Um, we could go another three or four weeks, uh, without it. You may or may not do that. I, I don't know. Um, it depends on how the weather works out this year. Um, but tobacco flowers and the seed that it produces from those flowers is frickin' Tiny, absolutely tiny. And if you only have one plant, you're going to want to get as much seed out of that as you can. So you can do something like take uh, like a pair of woman's stockings or something. Once the flowers are getting to the point where uh, they look like they're ready to start going to seed, and basically put it over that flower uh, head and and tie a string around it. Otherwise, you're going to lose most of your seed because I mean they are you've planted them now, so you know how tiny they are, and they kind of blow away in the wind. I mean, tobacco is basically a weed. Um, so that's. That's your issue there. Uh, as far as, you know, next time around, the big thing is to start your tobacco earlier where it can establish itself when the weather is warm enough for it to grow, but cool enough that it's not being beaten down by the sun. It doesn't do well, uh, in really hot environments, especially as a small young plant. Most plants don't. Uh, they need kind of that sheltered environment. If you think about all our plants that grow naturally, they, they slumber through the winter. The moisture of spring comes, and when the ground temperature hits a certain temperature for a long enough time, there's an intrinsic intelligence in that seed that said, now is the time to germinate. And it germinates, And that that, that consistent temperature basically says, you're not going to get frozen into death uh, anymore this year. Now it's safe to grow. And they come up in that cool part of the year, they put deep roots down, or wide roots down, because uh, tobacco is actually a very shallow-rooting plant, but it's a very large, spanning root system. So now when the heat comes, it's able to deal with it more with transpiration, which means te- the the plant actually takes up more water than it technically needs to cool itself. So as the water is being evaporated from the leaf itself by the sun, it's replacing it. Because a lot of times you'll get plants that they won't die but they look really wilty in the middle of the day, and then they you know water them at night, and they come back. And if they don't have that deep root system in, that's what's happening to them. So that's kind of how to, to to skate this thing going forward. As far as its value in your in your backyard and it should hit the fan scenario, um, one plant's probably not that valuable, honestly. But a nice tobacco patch and curing your own tobacco and having it as a as a product for barter. Oh my it's 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 one of the ultimate barter pro- I mean your ultimate barter products um it, when you when you move past the initial shock right when it's just I want food you have food I'll give you anything for food once we get once we get past that and you're looking at like a barter item that works as a currency <laughs> come on it's cigarettes it's booze and it's ammo why do you think there's a bureau of Al- alcohol tobacco and firearms as a single department i wondered about that for years you know, I really did. I thought, what the, what the hell does alcohol have to do with a cigarette? And okay, fine, but how does any, either one of them have anything to do with firearms? Hey, those are your three um, currencies. Those are your three global currencies. Alcohol, uh, tobacco, and firearms. And, and of course, ammunition uh, is, is the way that makes the firearm work, and it's the small component. You think about money uh, supplies that we talked about this week. You can break it down. You know, you can make 22 long rifles a penny, 9 millimeters a nickel, you know, uh, 223s two, two, a quarter, or however you wanted to set that up in your economy. And there's a common means of exchange. So, definitely a good product, but you have to have more than one or two plants for it to be of any use. Um, but if you grow, let's say a lot of plants, even if you don't, you're not a tobacco user, you put aside a ton of the seeds, because you could, the one thing about them being small is you can store Tons of them through a couple seasons, and you keep regrowing like this. Seasons every three years to keep your seed supply fresh. The seeds alone are going to be a huge currency value. Uh, if we have a really bad breakdown, if it ever—God forbid—it should come that—but if it does, they would be so. But to be able to use it in any quantity for a currency, you know, you're going to have to have a little patch of it. You not want one or two plants. So try it earlier in the year. Let's take the next uh, call.
3: Hey, Jack. This is Steve calling from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, wondering if you have a uh, position on these home warranty uh, programs uh, my wife and I have a uh, a plan that we kind of uh, got with our house uh, about four years ago you know came with the deal and I've been renewing it every year uh, to the tune of about five hundred dollars this will be so this will be the fourth time it's just coming up for renewal now and uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't come close to getting, uh, you know, complete return on it uh, to date. Uh, and, I, and just weighing the pros and cons, some of the ones that I can think of, I mean, your pros are basically uh, if, you know, you have a huge blowout of some kind like a, a air conditioning unit or, you know, a furnace or something like that, uh, you're, you're going to save yourself from taking a huge hit uh, on that. Uh, so that's that's the biggest pro. The, you know, the cons are, uh, the biggest one that I've thought of is <coughs> that you're, you're kind of at the mercy of uh, whatever the home protection, co- you know, company, uh, whatever equipment that they decide to put in. So if you're, you know, if you've got a top-of-the-line air conditioner, for example, uh, and it It conks out on you, and then they're going to replace it. They're not going to replace it with that same exact one. They're going to replace it with, you know, the cheapest one that they can find, which I've actually verified with, uh, you know, one of their certified contractors that they deal with. So, uh, you know, you're you're not going to get the best equipment, and, of course, that's going to be more likely to fail again uh, in the future. So, anyway, that's kind of like the long and short of it. There's there's other pros and cons, but I'm just wondering if you have any personal experience with these uh, companies. Uh, or if you have a position
0: on that. Thanks.
1: Yeah, it makes me feel a little bit more like the Home Handyman podcast or something like that. It sounds like a question that that kind of show on the AM radio on a weekend would get. But it is a, it's a relevant topic to what we do because we fund our households with money. And every decision we make with money, once we put it into something... Unless it's something that's going to give us a positive return of investment, it's gone and it's provided that resource and nothing more. So I'll take any question that has to do with, you know, money and a household budget. Um, in your particular instance, I'd say stop doing it. I, I really would. I, I, my position is this: if I buy a home and it comes with a home warranty, that's great. And that's wonderful, and that's fine, and yay. And, and, and if something happens during that warranty period and it covers it, good. Um, but I look at it this way. When you buy a warranty, you're making a bet that something's going to break and it's going to cost more than the premium. And you're making that bet with a company whose entire business model revolves around making that bet better than you. It's like going and playing high-stakes poker with those people you see on TV. You know, the guys with the sunglasses and all that do it for a living. You could win. It might happen. And if you do, the upside's there, but you're probably not going to win. So, I don't... I mean, whenever I look at insurance or any expenditure, I look at it this way. What is my risk and what is my cost to defer the risk? And what is the advantage of putting that money into a bucket and self-insuring against the risk? So you're paying 500 bucks a year, four years, two grand. There's not a lot of problems other than catastrophic problems that you can't fix around your house for two grand. So you're exposed for about that four-year period until you have up that $2,000 emergency bucket. Now, the key is that whenever you self-insure, you have to sequester that capital. In other words, it's just like you paid the bill. It's not available. And you pay that bill for as long as you feel you need to to build up that self-insurance fund. And if you have to draw against it, you start paying the bill again. But, I mean, look at it this way. That doesn't mean you can't ever draw out of it, but you have to really ask yourself, do I draw from the house emergency fund to do something that's not really a home emergency? You know, if it's send Billy off to play soccer, you probably don't. But if it's, I mean... The the beauty of that fund is it is at your discretion. So you put that in place, and you get a hailstorm, and your insurance company says, yeah, we'll cover the roof minus your deductible. Well, your home warranty company would never cover the deductible for damage to your roof in a hailstorm. So, Because that's an insurance function, not a home warranty function. But now you... As a master of your own fund, say, well that's what we're gonna do then. We're gonna that is our home warranty fund. That covers anything on our home. So I, I think that's a place to self insure. And if there was any way to get your two grand back, I'd tell you to get it back and put it in there. There isn't now. So I would say maybe make up a little for lost time, try to put away instead of five hundred bucks is what they're charging you, see if you can do seven fifty by the time the next time it comes around, put that in a bucket. It can be in one savings account, but you need to when you have your savings accounts, folks. You need to have like a general general emergency fund of three months. And then you start building these other buckets. Now, like I said, this might be all in one lump sum, but, you know, 10% of this is for X. 5% is for Y. And you need to keep kind of a tabula. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be on your computer. It can be in a notebook. Just to remind yourself when you draw money, what you're drawing it for and where it's coming from. You can also start looking at doing things like staggered CDs for this uh, type of insurance, you know, self-insurance. So, Go out and maybe you buy a five hundred dollars CD this year for one year CD, and uh, next year go buy another five hundred dollars CD, and next year go buy another five hundred dollars CD. Instead of paying the bill to the warranty company, buy a CD for yourself. And what will happen is your CDs—you'll always have some of them coming to term within one year, um, and set them on auto renewal. And yeah, you have to pay a penalty if you—you know—if you pull them out early, but it's not that big a penalty. Maybe you don't put all your emergency money there. But the other thing is, okay, I got my emergency fund, and I start building my buckets with these little increments in CDs, and I end up having to pull money for this. I just go to my regular savings account. I pull the 700 bucks there. As the CDs come to term, I cash them in and throw them back into my general savings. This way I can earn a better interest rate. So these are just some ideas that I have for you to make better use of that 500 bucks. But to me, giving it to a company that's a professional at betting against me – that's not the way I do it. I understand why people do, um, but no, that's not the way I'm going to handle things at all.
0: Hey, Jack. been listening to your show for about a year now. Uh, started on our own uh, debt uh, reduction plan. i uh, got a question. Uh, I live in Iowa, and uh, I can walk out my front door, walk about 30 feet, and there are thousands and thousands of acres of uh, corn and soybeans i uh, just wondering what you might suggest that a guy could do with that uh, in case the uh, crap hits the fan scenario. I'm uh, we'll just open to any ideas and suggestions you might have.
1: Thanks. Well, consider yourself lucky and eat it is my first response. I mean, um, it's probably mostly GMO and it's probably been sprayed with Roundup and I, I probably wouldn't go out there and start shucking the corn and uh, the, you know, like the feed, the hard shell feed corn and, and cr- turn it into cornmeal and make them bread out of it tomorrow morning. Um, because if I have a choice, I'm not going to eat GMO corn. If it, the shit has hit the fan and I need to eat it for a few months to, uh, survive, people eat it every day and survive. So I'm going to eat it. Soy, uh, soybeans are kind of the peasant's protein as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's not a complete protein. Anybody tells you it is, is is full of crap, but it's enough protein to get by with some other things brought into your life. I don't like soy. This health kick that people have for soy, they're ignoring uh, the, the, the reactions it creates at the hormonal level um, with estrogen and other things that are in soy. Uh, I'm not saying I try to banish soy from my life, but people that think that it's like nature's miracle food and they eat it in excess, man... Soy is not nature's miracle food. It's just one thing. And when you take any one thing, especially if it's been genetically modified, and you, you focus on it and you put an, uh, uh, an excess in your diet, with it, it, it's a mistake. But shit at the fan and I'm surrounded by cornfields and soy, um, yeah, I'm going to eat whatever I can get my hands on. Now, be real. The minute that that happens, those fields become guarded and or looted. Uh, and there's only certain times when they can be taken from. You can't... Go pick corn when the corn's two and a half feet high. You can't pick soybeans when the pods aren't formed yet. But here's a unique thought. I bet you all those farmers that, that have combines come in and harvest all that stuff and all and dry and store it on site would be happy to sell you giant, huge bags of it for next to nothing. And uh, it might be a good thing if, in short term if you don't have a long... Uh, long-term food supply, You might be a dirt-cheap way dealing directly to put away some buckets of food for the future. And as your supplies come up, feed that crap to the deer or something, man. I mean, don't rely on that kind of thing because it isn't the best choice, but it's certainly sufficient to get by with. I promise you that if we were in a situation where food was hard to come by and i had eaten through my stores, it'd been a year, and in front of me was a field of soy and corn, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm not going to eat that because it's genetically modified because number one rule of survival, wake up tomorrow breathing. So it's a food source. I mean, that's what it is. You also have um, a source for um, organic material for burning, I guess. I mean, corn stalks actually, once dried out, burn fairly hot, and small amounts could be used to cook with, like, let's say a rocket stove or something because you're probably in an area without a lot of timber, uh, so there's that as well. But, I mean, that's that's all I can give you. you eat it. That's what, it's a food source. Um, but don't use it to build your stores up because you know it's frankenfood. All right, let's go ahead. Uh, you know, anything other than kind of a, a get-by-stopgap measure, if you can do it dirt cheap. I mean, I'm talking dirt cheap if you do it, like I mentioned. But otherwise, leave that stuff alone. Um, take care of yourself. But if it comes down to it, don't be afraid to use it. That's what it's there for. Uh, Let's go ahead and take the next one. Jack,
2: it's Chuck in South Texas. As a former ammo tech in the Marine Corps, I uh, really appreciated the comment about burying a container Uh, a few episodes back. He put a container burying about four foot down in the ground and pushing dirt up over the top of it. Uh, My question to you, though, is uh, I have a piece of land where I think I'd like to do that, but I'm concerned about uh, the thing flooding out. Uh, the ground's fairly flat. It's got a, a mild slope to it, but uh, I'm worried about keeping the water drained off of it. Uh, how would you recommend doing that? Thanks for all you do, Jack.
1: I mean, the good news is that they're fairly watertight to begin with, and obviously you'd want to, if you're going to do the half burial thing I talked about, the front of it's not going to actually be buried. You're going to want to create kind of a set-into-the-hill functionality, and that it itself is going to create a, a drain-away effect. I mean, you're, you're not going to want to put this, if you have, you know, a beautiful piece of land and you've got a nice little dish shape down in the bottom, you don't want to bury this thing in the bottom of a hole. I mean, that's just not a good place for an underground structure to begin with. So you want to start by putting it at the highest ground that's available that makes sense for your your project. And for those that are going to container, what's he talking about? We're talking about these shipping containers, the ones that look like they belong on the back of a semi-truck, like you just drop them onto a flatbed, they ship stuff from China in them. You can buy them for next to nothing now compared to what you're getting. Again, the other thing is they're also fairly watertight, so that's going to help you in of itself. Um, I wouldn't want to do any kind of floor punctures to create any kind of drainage uh, sumps or anything like that, in them because that's going to invite more moisture in than it's going to keep out. Um, you could definitely, let's say you're going to do a four-foot hole in the ground, uh, dig down about four feet, and uh, maybe dig down about five, actually, and bring in maybe a foot of gravel, and then take your equipment you're using to do this with. And and put in basically what would amount to some French drain systems. It could even be just six, six inches of gravel would do this for you. And it doesn't have to be super fine grade gravel. It can be whatever you can get your hands on. And maybe build um, two trenches that slope away at an angle from the bottom. Uh, and, and slope down in a way and fill those with uh, gravel as well. And then when you backfill, you bury your gravel. That's going to create a natural drain system, and that's going to pull a lot away from you. I can't tell you that if you bury one of these things a 100 years from now, it won't rust through eventually. Um, it probably will. But it will actually probably last longer covered with earth than it will expose to the elements. Uh, especially built, again, with sloping and drainage. I, I think it's probably a good way to go. I don't think you'll have a lot of problems with them flooding out. Uh, you do want to make sure that your doors are sealed. You want to make sure the container itself has nothing, um, no, no, no penetrations in it. I guess one of the things you could do is, is basically create a vapor barrier around it. Uh, which is something I'd never thought of before. It could be done very, very inexpensively with uh, with just simple uh, uh, plastic tarpaulin. Uh, the stuff like for painters, painters use and all, but the thicker stuff, the stuff that's like um, the, the heaviest stuff you can get, I mean, it's still dirt cheap. And it's not about keeping everything out. It's about keeping most of the things out. Uh, the other thing you're going to want to do, though, is if you're ever going to want to use this structure as something you would go inside and close the doors... and and hole up in like a storm shelter or something like that, you're going to have to put on the roof some type of external uh, ventilation system. So you're going to want to do some kind of like penetrations in the roof portion, and those are going to have to be very well taken care of. Uh, But definitely, if if it's just for storing crap, and every time you go in there you're going to have the doors open or whatever, I wouldn't worry about it. But for a lot of people, this would make an awesome storm shelter. I would feel much safer in there... Uh, Than I would sitting in my home when there's a tornado siren going off. So if you're going to run electricity and all it, you have to put in some type of ventilation system. And uh, I wouldn't rely on passive ventilation in that. I would rig something up with some level of power backup system with battery, uh, where you can run K- some small fans. Which I mean, a couple fans, one sucking air in and one blowing air out. I mean, you could set up a battery system that would run that for days and just run grid power to keep the battery system charged. Couple uh, couple uh, uh, batteries for your uh, you know like trolling motors or something would do that again for days especially if you didn't run it continuously but only kind of as the air needed some circulation but if you uh, if you look at your land slope right plan for that in advance go with the highest piece of ground that makes sense for what you're doing do some gravel underlay to create drain away do a couple trenches that the slope away from the bottom of the gravel outward for far enough to get that any kind of water to flow away and do a vapor barrier on top of it, you should have something that's going to outlast you at least. I don't know that it will outlast your kids, uh, but for the investment, it's a pretty good return of investment. Let's go ahead and take another. In fact, I'm probably going to do this, by the way, guys. Uh, Not this year coming up once we move, but maybe in the the following year or year after. I think this is a great idea. Let's go ahead and take another call.
0: Hey, Jack. It's James in Texas. Uh, Long-time listener. uh, First-time caller. I've always wanted to say that. Um, I have a quick question about uh, hunting privileges in states where you're not a resident. Uh, my parents own some property in Arkansas, and apparently you have to be a resident to uh, hunt there. I'm a resident of Texas, so you might know something about this. Is there some way that I can get the resident discount in Arkansas uh, without having to get a driver's license in Arkansas? I'd sure appreciate it. I think you've answered this question before, but I'd sure appreciate it if you go over it again. Thanks.
1: Um, technically, there's no way to do it because you're going to have to show proof of residency to obtain your hunting license to get a resident rate. And even if you were to get somebody to sell you a license that's a non resident license, and if you happen to get checked by a game warden or as we call them around here, a rabbit sheriff. If the rabbit sheriff checks you and says, well, there's your license, that's great, boy, let me see your uh, ID, and you whip out that Texas identification card, well, you know, he's going to say you're you're using a non-resident. And I don't know what the fine is, but I'm sure it's a hell of a lot more than not getting the discount for a resident. Um, when I hunt in Arkansas my own property, I have an Arkansas hunt license on me, and I pay the non-resident fee, and it's not that much. And they have a combined, just like Texas does, where you can get uh, fishing and hunting for the year, and it's reasonable. It's definitely more than a resident pays, but if you look at what a non-resident pays to hunt in a state like New York or Pennsylvania or, or um, a lot of states in that area, it's dirt cheap. It's a deal. Now, for you, your parents are there, and you, you don't have land up there like I do. Maybe you're not up there like I am all the time. There is a loophole, and it's not really a loophole. It's it's a it's a program designed for people that are going to come in and hunt for a week and go away. You can buy a short-term hunting license in the state of Arkansas, like a five-day non-resident. I think there's a 48-hour one. I think, I think those are the two options. I'm not sure, but if you go to the Arkansas Fishing Game website and look up non-resident uh, options, You can select from those. So if you're going to just go up there, stay at your dad's house and hunt for a couple days and come home, and you might not get back this season, there's no reason to buy a season-long license. You can buy that short-duration license. But, I mean, the only other way to pull, if you really wanted to pull this off and you were going to break rules to do it, here's how you could. And one of those things, I'm going to tell you what you could do, but you really shouldn't. You could go up to Arkansas, you could use your dad's or your mom's or whoever's place this is, uh, home or home is, uh, your address. You could go down to the, uh, their, their Department of Public Safety or whoever issues, I don't have an Arkansas driver's license yet, so I don't know exactly the procedure, but you go down there. And you can say that you don't want a driver's license, you want a state ID. And you can probably get them to give you a state ID and give them a, you know, uh, proof of residence or whatever and mail it to you. And you can get an ID and you can have a state ID for Arkansas and a driver's license for Texas. And then you could probably get away with hunting as long as you weren't driving to get there. And uh, you'd probably pay more for the, the the cost of the ID card than you would. I think it's technically illegal. I'm not sure on that, but I'm pretty – I don't think you can have – a Texas a Texas driver's license and an Arkansas ID and claim dual residency. On top of this, you live in the state of Texas. The state of Texas does not have an income tax on your income. The state of Arkansas, which I'm not happy about the fact that this is the case, has a income tax, uh, a state income tax. If you are a state resident of Arkansas, you're gonna pay that state income tax. It'll be a hell of a lot more than your license fee. Buy the non-resident license and go on with life and count yourself ahead because if you start paying the uh, Arkansas State Income Tax you can buy an awful lot of non-resident licenses with those. Let's go ahead and take another call.
0: Hey Jack, this is Joe out of Cincinnati. I've just got a quick question for you. I got an email from my mom of all people um, about the HR 45 Blair Holt Firearm Licensing and Record of Sales Act of 2009. Um, started to look into this, and I'm realizing I don't know exactly what this is, what this means, and who better to ask than you. I'm sure if I had this question, other people have it too. If you don't mind just going into uh, what this exactly means, whether or not I should do it. If I don't do it, what does that mean? And what does this mean for uh, gun owner rights in general? Just uh, FYI, I do have my conceal and carry, if that matters. Thanks, Jack. Love the show.
1: Another one of the freaking vampire issues that won't die. And because people are still asking, I'll still answer. But I've done this before, not picking on the caller, because obviously you haven't heard the answer before. The Blair Holt Bill, H.R. 45, was a terrible bill. And it did require you to have a license to own a handgun anywhere in the United States under federal authority. But it's a bill. And this is a time that we all have civics one-on-one. Because I get, and this again, I'm not on the caller here. I'm on everybody that sends me these emails about these bills in the House of Bill without reading them, without learning anything about them, without seeing where they're at. And you'll understand what I mean here in a second. But a bill is not a law. If there is a bill in Congress to do something, it doesn't mean a damn thing to you unless it passes both branches of Congress and goes to the the President and he executes it. So. Don't get up in arms over a proposed bill, because these clowns propose bills to do all kinds of crap all the time that never come out of committee. This is what happened with H.R. 45. It went to its committee, and um, Nancy Pelosi, of all people, Nancy Pelosi looked at this and went, you can't do this. Even if I want it, you can't do this. Nancy Pelosi stated, there's no reason to bring that bill out of committee, because I will not allow it on the floor for a vote. That's how bad this bill was. And to her credit, at least, you know, once in a while, even a blind squirrel finds a nut and says there was a counterpart, a Senate bill counterpart to this bill that was similar. And, of course, if they would have passed both of them, they would have to go back and forth and get a compromise between the House and the Senate on this. But I can't remember the number, of but there's a Senate bill that was very similar. Harry Reid said he wouldn't let it on the floor of the Senate. So the two Democrats in charge killed these two bills. They've been mired in committee since 2009. Officially, still they're still there. They're never going to see the light of day. And as far as you don't know if you should do this, there's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for anybody to do with this thing except keep an eye on it. If they do Frankenstein it and raise it from the dead, you know, if it becomes a vampire and comes back other than in an email box and they actually make a push on it, then we need to push back. But... If the liberal Congress that we have right now, with as many people that are anti-gun in there right now, can't get it out of committee for the next two years, you, you can backshelf that and worry about other things. This thing is dead. And for the for the love of God, the reason I'm answering this: when you get an email, please listen to me. If you're doing something else, I'll right? stop and listen. When you get an email that said Obama kicked a baby in the head, or George Bush, you know, sliced somebody open with a machete, or something like that. Or they're going to make you do something with your tax return. They're going to make you list every time you take a leak on your tax I'm being ridiculous, but some of this stuff is like that. You know, B- Barack Obama redecorated the White House in Muslim garb. Uh, like It looks like Turkey in there now, a Turkey Turkish parliament. And that's a real one. And any of these things, Barack Obama didn't salute the flag. He didn't put his hand on his heart when they played the Star Spangled Banner. You know why? They weren't playing the Star Spangled Banner. They were playing Hail to the Chief. They were playing a song for him in that picture. Uh, I don't like the guy, but come on, would you guys please, when you get these emails, do the most basic form of fact checking you can, take the name of it and stick it in there, check out Snopes, Snopes is not the end all be all, but get a story from them and then verify or de- deny their story, please fact check this crap, because here's something that's been dead for almost two years, dead, D-E-A all the way dead. And we have people wasting time and energy on it while they're doing real things to take away our freedoms. So please, please fact-check your sources before you hit forward, for God's sakes. And I'm going to tell you right now that everyone that forwards an email to me like that, where it can be verified with five seconds in a Google search, I'm not mean to you, but I'm a little bit terse when I reply to you and send you the link. So if you're going to forward it to me, you better check it. And just because the email says it's been verified, it hasn't been verified. You verify it. You think for yourself. You know why you believe what you believe. Take the time to do this stuff because I actually think the people on the other side of the fence are the source of this more often than someone going too far on, on the on, on the side of the fence you're on. I think it's used in large scale to make us look like ignorant freaking idiots. Because when we start saying all this stuff and everybody gets mad, and sooner or later we had a tea, somebody's at a tea party and go, Obama wants to take away my tomatoes with this, this this law about the gardens. And then people that are rational and thinking people go, is that true? And look it up and find out. Then you look foolish. It's up to us to verify these things for ourselves. Please do that. Let's go ahead and take another call.
4: Hey Jack, Phil from Tucson. I just saw I just read your article about the US losing its influence in the Western Hemisphere, which in my opinion is due primarily to us being regulated into international impotence by eco-weenie activists and lobbyists in Washington, but that aside, uh, I want to pose a devil's advocate question for you. Now, ignoring the fact that our economy is non-self-sustaining, which I realize, and it has to grow year after year in order to thrive, ignoring that, let me say this, so what if we lose our influence internationally? If we don't export all of our copper, all of our beef, all of our oil, then in the event of a global pandemic or food shortage or something like that, then all of that that we did not export to other countries would remain within our borders to benefit our own citizens. How is that a bad thing? So I'm not bought into either camp on this yet, but I wanted to get your opinions. And I know you're an Army guy, but as a jarhead, I have to say, Semper Fly. Thanks for the show, buddy.
1: All right, well, that's a fair point. But it's a fair point only until the part where we start to actually think about systems of delivery and distribution and production and extraction and refinement and the things that actually make stuff go from being some ore in the ground into a a piece of copper that can become a wire or that make things go from a field of grass to a cow that we can slaughter and make steak out of. See, if you're running an export-based economy and you're exporting more than you're importing and you have a catastrophe, you have the systems of production, distribution, and delivery ramped up, and when you halt exports, you immediately create surplus for use internally. Anything beyond that surplus becomes extremely valuable, and now you can continue and open exportation back up and do it at a premium. If you are running an import-based economy like the United States is right now, we're not only are we not exporting, but we're not producing. So if we have oil reserves, great, we're not drilling and pumping them, and we're not refining them, and we haven't increased our refinement capacity. Right? We have copper in the ground, but we're not extracting it, and we're not refining it. We have all this great grazing land, but since we're not exporting beef, and we are importing beef, now we're only producing enough beef to make up the, beef to make up the shortfall and if we go into a shit hit the fan scenario and the export cease from the countries that are doing it the other way around, we're at a short end, right? Now we could probably all live on corn and soy like the earlier caller was talking about for a while. Um, sure, not the way I want to live. That's why I store some of my own food. But all of that concept in like, well, if we, you know, we're saving our oil so we can pump it when everybody else is out. If you don't have the systems in place to grow, to produce. To extract, to refine, to distribute, and you get cut off of your foreign sources, you have the raw materials, but in a crisis, how long does it take to ramp up from raw material to production? And the answer is, at minimum, for short-term commodities, a year. And for things like new oil wells or new copper mining, multiple years. To build a nuclear plant, decades. A full decade. So, it, 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 the, the, the argument you're making has been made a lot of times before, but the problem is we have to think through the entire process. Okay, we're not exporting our, let's just use beef. We're not exporting our beef and we're importing Argentinian beef. And, and that's great because if the shit is the fam, we'll have all our cow meat for ourselves. You know, all our beef for ourselves. But the Argentinian beef goes away and everybody that's producing beef right now is doing it at the particular level they're doing it at now and they're doing it at the unsustainable rate that they're doing it at now. We're not growing grass-fed beef and we're not replenishing our, our, our Great Plains and using, you know, we're not basically turning cows into tame buffalo, which would be the smart way to do this. And then, all of a sudden, well, now, since we don't export it, we have it for ourselves, but what do we have for ourselves? We don't have a stockpile of cows sitting somewhere, man. Same thing with copper. You mentioned copper. It's not like we have a great huge pile of it all refined and ready to go, and we're just sitting on it. What is a reserve? It's in the ground, and the easy copper is already out of the ground. The hard copper is still in the ground. Now the Chinese will pull it out of the ground, you know. And there's a balance. You're right. We are overregulated, but they're underregulated. So because they're underregulated, because they'll just destroy shit. Because they're acting like we did in the 30s. And if you think we're overregulated, while well, you're right, you don't understand how bad no regulation is. I grew up in the coal region of Pennsylvania. I've seen ecosystems where the coal was mined 80 years ago, and no one has touched it for 80 years, and the land still looks like a nuclear bomb went off. I've seen places in, in, in eastern Pennsylvania where zinc mining was done, And the forest, as it grows, it literally burns itself. And even though it hasn't been touched for decades, it looks like yesterday somebody poured gasoline and lit a fire. There is a balance. And our industry has decided that since the Chinese will produce this stuff with no care whatsoever, and therefore do it dirt cheap, and we have to do it maybe too strictly regulated over here, that we'll buy from the Chinese because it's cheaper. And as a business decision, short term, that's fine. But if we don't have a production capacity over here ramped up, your plan doesn't work. At least it doesn't work for 10 years to switch everything on. We can't just push a button it all starts running again. We can't throw a switch and have Rosie the Riveter show back up like we did in World War II. There's a period of time to ramp up to that. So it's not that your point's not got some some good parts to it, but it's not complete. Because you haven't thought about the other side, the fallout. Let's go ahead and take another question.
0: Oh uh, yeah, my name's Dave from Salt Lake City, Utah, and it's you know a hunt, hunting state. And I was wondering if you could only afford to buy one gun for home protection and hunting. If you know you had to hunt to survive, what gun would you choose? Anyway, thank you. Bye.
1: In the spirit of your question, I'll give you a direct answer: either a 12 or 20 gauge shotgun with a good Assortment of ammunition, everything from buckshot to birdshot to slugs. Um, and I would become extremely proficient with it, and that's what I would do. Um, answering your question a little bit more realistically, if you can afford one gun, you can afford at least two. You can go to a gun store, you can go to the classified ads, you can go somewhere and buy them used, and instead of buying a new one, you can go buy kind of a, a, an old, uh, kind of, uh, sad looking but perfectly functional pump shotgun. And you can find yourself with something like an old Savage 110 or an old Remington or something like that. Uh, bolt action 308 or 3006. The shotgun then becomes a hunting implement plus your home defense weapon. Uh, and the rifle is, of course, a rifle, especially in Utah. You get to hunt in Utah, well, you're not going to do a whole lot of squirrel hunting in Utah or rabbit hunting or bird hunting. I guess there's a little bit of that going on there, but mostly what you have in Utah is big game. Uh, you also have big wide open spaces where a shotgun, even with slugs, is at an inherent disadvantage. Um, you know, a specialty slug gun might put your range out to 150 yards. Well, if you can afford that, you can afford a, a kind of an old rifle and, and an old shotgun. Uh, and then the rifle is going to reach out even further than that with even just a cheap piece of Tasco, uh, scope glass on it. So I would, I would say in your situation, that's, that's your minimum. Uh, handgun, I mean, pfft, Long-term, you can at least 140 bucks and buy a high point nine millimeter and keep that under the bed mattress or, or something like that, even if you're not carrying on you. Is that my first choice? Hell no, but it, it may, in a home situation, be preferable uh, for quick access and uh, uh, dealing with confined spaces, but the shotgun's fine for that as well. So shotgun, if I can only have one, and either a pump or semi-auto, and if I'm down on my on my budget to where that's all I can have, I'm going to go to a gun show. I'm going to go to the classifieds. I'm going to buy from a private seller. I'm going to buy an older one because I'm going to reserve as much as money as I can to purchase ammunition to go with that shotgun. Uh, in in your area, I'm going to focus on slugs and buckshot first. Few few boxes of scatter shot, you know, seven and a half or or eight something, or six is something in general for small game hunting. But there's just not it's not a big small game area. Um, so, there, there's my answer for you. Shotgun if I have to, shotgun and rifle. And I mean, you can even, I mean, with the rifle, come on, man, you can go out to a gun show and you can buy an old Mazin Nagant uh, for $75. Uh, you can buy a 540 round 10 of ammunition for that. Is it the best hunting ammunition? No, but it's, it's better than a shotgun for big game, especially at any distance exceeding 50 yards. You can buy that 10. For about forty or fifty dollars, still I think maybe maybe seventy five, hundred fifty bucks. You've got five hundred rounds of ammo in a gun, and uh, and a, a battle ready. I mean, these things were built in the early nineteen hundreds uh, originally, and they're old and they're ugly and they stink of cosmoline. But I would just not limit myself that way. The mental thought experiment. I'm back to a shotgun in your area. In other areas, I might actually switch and say a twenty-two. It depends on what's available in my area. I don't like a 22 for self-defense. It's better than a sharp stick, right? It's a lot better than a sharpened stick, uh, but it doesn't have the knockdown uh, power to incapacitate something that I I see as a threat to me. Um, But the fact that I can shoot a squirrel with it or put one behind the ear of a deer at 50 yards and drop it stone dead um, in an area that's more a woods area with a lot of small game, I might gravitate that way. All right, let's go ahead and take the next one.
2: Hi, I'm wondering, my wife is allergic to iodine, so my water purification um, options are kind of limited. So, what would you suggest? Because she has had iodine put on her, I thought she had it before she knew she was allergic, and she literally swells up like she's going to pop. So, um, anything you can suggest, I'd appreciate. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye. Easy one. Filters don't use iodine, so use a filter. Murky system, um, for something at home, uh, travel system, if you know, somebody you wanted to travel with something like the Lifesaver uh, products that are available from ready made resources, and any other product out there that does the job and has the specs to back it up. I mentioned those two because they're sold by sponsors and I can know and I can trust them and all, but I mean, if there's a system out there that'll do the same job and it, it's what you want to buy and it's it meets your approval, fine. But most filtration systems don't use iodine at all, so instead of using chemical, uh, use uh, filtration. If you're in a situation where you don't trust filtration alone, boil your water. Um, I'm not big on the iodine solution in the first place. It is a uh, it is definitely a fallback solution for me. I do keep the little purification tablets in my bug out bag. In all our bug out bags and some of our other little mini kits and things like that, because at least it's there. Um, but filtration's better for a lot of reasons. One, the filtration, the filtration technology we have today, uh, especially if we got something specific coupled with boiling can generally do as good a job or better than the iodine alone anyway. Two, the water's a hell of a lot more palatable. You know, I could take muddy, murky, nasty water and put iodine in there and make it safe to drink, but am I going to be able to get, you know, an eight-year-old kid to drink that water? Probably not. And I'm not going to be real, ha- I'll do it, but I'm not going to be real happy about it. So rely on filtration, that, I mean, that's, that's the easy answer to that one. Let's go ahead and take another question.
2: Hey, Jack. Just wanted to share a little story with you. The other day I was in Ikea with some friends, and we bumped into an older gentleman who uh, lived through Germany during the Nazi era, and when he was, he was a, basically a young teenager, a 12-year-old, when he last came to America. And it, it was amazing. You could see the sadness on his face as we were talking with him. As he talked about America, you know, going out and making war, and, you know, resources, whatnot, and as well as what was going on here at home. And you could see, you know, it's like, you know, I've seen it before, you know. You just see the sadness as he was watching the country that he moved to and called home and, you know, loved. Following in the footsteps of that same, you know, control and everything, and it's just kind of one of those things that a lot of us Americans don't realize we've not seen it. I mean, I'm I've, I'm a '80s generation Xer you know, kid. I you know grew up with Michael Jackson. All we've seen is this era, and so many of us don't see the actual signs, and we think, oh, this is just how it always has been. And just seeing the sadness on his face for America, man, it hit you.
1: Well, that's our last call of the day. And I usually try to end my Friday shows with something upbeat to carry you through the weekend, make you feel empowered. And you might think, well, how are you going to make that empowering? Because it's pretty sad when we have people that came here. And I see this same thing with my father-in-law. My father-in-law was uh, living in the Netherlands when the uh, Nazis invaded and pushed out uh, the last bit of, of troops across the, the English Channel and, and took over, uh, Europe and lived through Nazi occupation all the way up through and past D-Day as the Allies came back. And, and after his, his area was liberated as a young man, at the age of uh, 17, he joined the, uh, the Dutch Marine Corps and, uh, served there until the end of the war and actually was slated to depart to the Pacific Theater. And because of some things that his father had done, who was actually an operative who worked, uh, to help people behind enemy lines, um, and was decorated by Eisenhower for that, almost lost his life to the Nazis because they eventually captured him, um, was, was actually pulled from service and allowed to, uh, eventually immigrate to the United States with his new wife soon thereafter, who was actually, who's, you know, of course, my, my, my wife's mother, uh, who, who we lost about nine years ago. Uh, To cancer, so he lived that, and he came here, you know, in the in the post-war America uh, uh, where there was pride and honor and and patriotism. And this man grew up in in the Netherlands, and he will always be Dutch. Uh, He's he's proud of that background as well, but when he talks about where he comes from, he talks about it nostalgically. When he talks about America. And he talks about what it represents to him. He gets choked up. He almost he almost you hear his voice crack. And and I think that's what these people were seeing with this gentleman that they spoke to as well. And there's a message from that generation. And folks, they're going away. They're leaving us. They're dying. They're dying because it's their time to die. We we are we have a limited. If you take nothing else from the show, always remember we're limited as human beings. You know, right around 100 years or so, we've kind of wound lots of times earlier, but by 100, we've kind of wound the clock out. So, so people like my father-in-law in their 80s now, people that were older and served at the beginning of the war in their 90s. And the people that lived through it as civilians, some of them were children, but even the children that lived through it, they only remember them, you know, have the memories as children. Your memories when you're 5 are different than your memories when you're 15, folks. This whole generation is going to be gone soon. And who will remember? Who will, who will warn us if we don't educate ourselves now? If you listen to Alex over at the Socialism Survival Podcast, he thinks America is insane. Why? Because he lived through socialism in the Soviet Union. And he sees all the hallmarks that were marching in that direction when, when his old country is Is finally starting to move somewhat, at least a little bit away from these things. And he looks around and he thinks, are you people insane? And he can't understand it because he doesn't have the same frame of reference that we do. So how does that become inspiring? Because it doesn't have to be that way. Because this nation is still a republic. It is not a monarchy. It is not a dictatorship. And we are still in control. We have been led to believe that we're not in control. We've been led to believe that we don't have a choice. We've been manipulated. We've been lied to. We've been divided into classes so that we will fight amongst ourselves. And we're stupid enough to still do it. When the banking system in the 1880s published in a public magazine a statement that they would make each side in a two-party system Worry about fighting each other so we would ignore them. It's been public for that long, and yet we still fight each other. But I'll tell you what, in spite of how easy it is to manipulate the American people, in spite of all of that, there are times when this nation, we're almost like an old man that was asleep. You know, an old tough guy that was asleep, he was taking a snooze in the middle of the day, and someone someone's messing around on his property, he wakes up, ah, what's going on? Right, But once he wakes up and he goes out there, somebody's getting a beaten. And he might go back to sleep way too soon. But when he wakes up, he's staying awake and somebody's going to get a beaten. Well, I'm starting to see that in my people right now. I'm starting to see it. I don't know how long it'll last. I don't know how far we'll go this time. I don't know how far we'll push the tide back. But we're waking up. And the people that listen to this show, you're waking up in more ways than what sign you hold or who you vote for. You're waking up in how you think for yourself. You're starting to ask questions. You may not agree with everything I say. I hope the hell not. Okay? You shouldn't agree with everything I say. But if it it conflicts with what you believe, then take what you believe and what I believe and research the hell out of it and find out. Know why you believe what you believe. That scares the establishment. That's why I did two shows this week on the monetary system. Because we can put all the people that say the right things in office, but if the banks still control everything, then we're not going to get the results that we're looking for. But we're starting to wake up. We're starting to realize that each of us within ourselves has a sovereignty as an individual. And that we don't have to take shit just because they tell us that we do. That there are options and that there are other ways. That inside each of every one of us, there is a burning desire for revolution. And that revolution is not necessarily changing the nation, but understanding the blindness that we've been born into, but the freedom at any time to open our eyes and take control of our own lives. And say the hell with this no more. This is my line in the sand. I don't care if it's the same as my neighbor's. But you will not come any further into my life. And if I have to make sacrifices to keep you out, I will. Maybe that means I can't quite do things the way I normally would. But I will make the choice and I will make the decision. And I will force you out. I will route you out of my own life wherever I can. Inside of you lies the spirit, and I don't care if you immigrated here like my father-in-law a few decades ago, or like my family a hundred years ago. You're here now, and if you care, if it matters to you that you're an American, inside of you is the spirit of Thomas Jefferson, who believed that it was dangerous for too few people to have too much power, and even wrestled with it himself as our president. It understood there were times for the good of the nation that there had to be a strong leader who would act. But it had to be done with temperance. It had to be done as an exception, not a matter of course. Inside of you is the spirit of Andrew Jackson, who turned to the bankers who wanted to kill him and said, You won't kill me. I will rout you out by the eternal God. I will rout you out. That's who you are. Inside of you is the spirit of the person that in the 1600s boarded a ragged, stinking, rat-filled, rotten vessel and crossed the dangerous ocean for the opportunity to settle a land that was harsh and needed a strong hand to turn it into something more. Inside of you is all these things. And it's up to you to reach in and pull them out. And when you do it, you will not be the same man as me. You will not be the same man as the man to your left or to your right. Or women as well. I'm not, you know, I'm using that term universally, folks. We will not all agree on exactly how to go forward. But at least let's have the conversation from a point of power. Let's stop cowering in front of of our government, and require them to cower in front of us for a change. It doesn't require a rifle to do that. It requires you to be an informed citizen, with logic, and with the willingness to tell others to inform themselves. Not to tell them how to think, not to tell them what to think, but to encourage them to learn for themselves, to put them in touch with their own power. It can start with planting a seed in the ground, or planting a seed in a heart. But you gotta go out and you gotta plant. Because this is not something we will fix in a single election cycle. If there is to be a true revolution, if we are to take this nation back, it will take a decade. Maybe two. It will take not losing focus. It will take continued independence for each individual involved. But it can be done. I won't tell you how, I won't tell you what to think, I won't tell you where to go along the way. I'll tell you to focus on your own independence, and everything else will take us from there. Because I have enough faith in you, and I have enough faith in my fellow Americans, that if we can just lose this nonsense of, I can't do it, it's not possible, somebody has to fix it for me, the second we start saying, I can, I will, I must, and I I am going to, and I am doing so now the minute that happens the minute that happens we turn the tide the battle won't be over but I would rather spend a decade or two good times or bad fighting that battle using the tools that we have available to us as a republic than spend 4 years of bloodshed or 5 years or 10 years of bloodshed only to end up in a worse place than we are no matter what you believe politically We were given the tools to control this country. It's up to us to act with those tools. And it starts right in your backyard. It starts not with the people that you send to Washington. It starts with the people that sit in your county seat. It starts with the people that are on your town council. And it starts with the people that go to your state capitol. You take control of them. And you go from bottom up. Start to claim back as a nation that we all love in our hearts. Where we don't have to agree, but we can all have liberty as long as we have respect for each other. And with that, I'll sign off today. This has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget.